episode 5 of the podcast, The Golden Age of Islam. Today's subject is the Great Muslim Conquests, a series of military campaigns that brought an area from Spain all the way to the borders of China under the control of a Muslim empire. That was the largest empire the world had seen up to that point, and even today it ranks with the greatest conquests in history right up there with the Mongol conquest of Genghis Khan or the mighty British Empire at its height. So today we're going to address some big questions. Why did the Muslims conquer such a large expanse of land? How did they manage to do this? And perhaps more importantly, why did this empire persist for centuries when others disappeared just as quickly as they emerged? What were the long-term impacts of this empire on history? And as for the question of why it finally collapsed, well, that's what we'll be answering over the episodes to come. But a key to answer all of these questions is another question, and that is, what kind of an empire was this? What was the nature of this Muslim empire? How did it differ from other empires before it? And that really accounts for a lot of its staying power and its success. So stay with us today as we talk about the great Muslim conquests. Welcome back. If you've been following this series, then you're not going to be surprised to hear me to say that today we're going to focus on the big picture. Yeah, there were a lot of battles, a lot of leaders involved, a lot of skirmishes back and forth. And when you study a subject like this, you can really get bogged down in the details. Now, if you're interested in those details of the military conquest, there's one resource to turn to. And that is really the source book for so much of this information, a book called The Great Arab Conquest, written by the historian Hugh Kennedy out of the University of London. And this is really the the best source out there. You'll see it uh, on the website, and I heartily recommend it to you. Fortunately, Dr. Kennedy also talks about the big picture, the whys in the hows, and that's what we're going to focus on here today. So your first question probably is, how did they manage to do this? How did a small group that not too long ago had been chased out of the city of Mecca and took refuge in a very small, obscure desert town, manage to conquer an area that stretched much of the known world at the time? Well, if you're going to pick the most likely community to establish a world empire, the early Muslims probably wouldn't have been your most likely choice. Nor, if you were to pick a timetable, would you have guessed that it would take about a hundred years to conquer more territory than the Romans could do in several centuries. Now, of course, if you were a Muslim in 750 AD, let's say, you would have said that this was a result of God's will. It was a divine plan that led Islam on such an amazing sequence of conquest. And let's be honest, it's pretty easy to see why you would think that. Everything that was happening in the world certainly seemed to be validating that idea. Remember, Muhammad originally came out with a mission to bring his message to the world. He was so confident in that mission, if you remember a few episodes back, he sent envoys to the major empires to let them know, to the Byzantines, to the Persians. A century later, the results would have quieted most of those skeptics and those who turned him down. And this is very important. I don't just say this. Because that attitude, that belief that history was really leading towards this Muslim victory and establishing of a worldwide Muslim community really shapes the attitude that Islam and the rulers of this empire are going to have towards other cultures and other ideas. This is one of the reasons we get such a golden age of sciences and philosophy in which Jews, Christians, and Muslims are working together in great centers like Baghdad. So there is this underlying idea that Islam is the final word. We know it views itself as the final religious message, but also really the final word in history. Islam is the inheritor and the perfecter that all had gone before. And honestly, in the first century of Islam, everything that was happening in the world seemed to be validating this. And this is important because Muslim rulers, at least during this early period, this golden age, they weren't afraid of philosophies or sciences that came from other people, even if those people were essentially pagans. 
So Greek, Roman, even Hindi knowledge uh, was their inheritance, just like the natural resources of the lands that they were conquering. And the steady rate of conversion of pagans and Christians to Islam also validated the idea that there was no need to coerce these people. You could work with them. In fact, interestingly enough, as we're going to mention later on, there was some early concern amongst the Muslim community that Christians might convert too fast, faster than the expanding religious system could handle. But the point here is to emphasize that the, just the nature of these conquests creates an attitude that really shapes the Islamic empire and Islamic culture for centuries to come. Now, to be fair, if we contrast this with Christianity for a moment, uh, Christians spent their first two centuries heavily persecuted by Roman rulers who considered themselves gods and therefore considered these Christians to be basically rebels. So the old cliche we always hear about throwing Christians to the lions is just one of the many ways that they were persecuted. So a community that grew up with the idea of the state being the enemy, and particularly of Greek and Roman culture, which was so heavily based on paganism, being antagonistic to Christianity, created a different idea than the Muslims basically found everyone surrendering to them as they were moving along. Okay, so that's one explanation, but we want to look at some others. So usually when we talk about a great military conquest, There's always some kind of military technology or new tactics underlying it. The Huns, for example, were masters of horse archery. And the thing they were famous for is the fact that they could fire backwards on a horse when they were moving at high speed. And compared to the armies they went up against, this just gave them incredible mobility. But also throughout history, we talk about the development of gunpowder and what a game changer that was, the British longbow, or even the German blitzkrieg and how that changed things. In this case, however, uh, the Muslims had no special weapons or special tactics. In fact, on the battlefield, against an evenly matched a Byzantine or Persian force, they didn't do particularly well. Maybe the only difference we could say is they had a strategic difference in their use of the camels. Now, they didn't fight on camels. They would ride them to the battle, then dismount and fight hand-to-hand -hand with swords or spears. And when you think about a group of warriors going head-to-head -head with swords, I mean, it's not something that some sort of new technology or some new tactic is really going to affect it a whole lot. The one thing the camels did enable the Muslims to do, however, was to travel great distances across terrain that the other side thought was an obstacle. You know, the old ship of the desert moniker that we give to the camel it was really true. So the camel gave Muslims a strategic advantage. Basically, their armies could appear in places that no one thought they could reach. I mean, think about crossing the Sahara or even the notorious Persian salt desert, which occupies much of the center of Iran and made the Persians think they were safe hiding behind it. But once they got there, they fought just like their enemy. Nor were the numbers on their side. Now, the European imagination at this time painted images of wild hordes of Bedouins swarming out of the desert, fueled by this religious fanaticism. But when you think about it, this was really applying what was going on in northern Europe to what was happening down south. They were seeing the Huns and the various other barbarians like the Vandals, the Goths, the Vikings swarming through. And those were genuine hordes. And by horde, we mean they traveled the entire population. They brought families with them and the entire thing was moving. The Muslim forces uh, were not like that. They were actually armies. They were divided into carefully organized corps. They didn't bring their families with them initially. They didn't settle in the new areas uh, initially. And so this was a very different type of campaign. And for the most part, they usually had either inferior numbers or just about the same numbers as their opponents did. And we're going to talk a little bit about the numbers picture uh, later on because that does affect it. And for the most part, the Muslim forces 
didn't come to colonize initially. The colonization followed along slowly. Now, the Muslim commanders were good. They were selected for their loyalty, for their effectiveness, uh, for their tribal backgrounds, and particularly they had to have the ability to work independently. And this was something that coming from the Bedouin background, they really did have. But we don't see in this picture any evidence of strategic geniuses who changed the nature of battle. Uh, there's no one like Subotai, who was Genghis Khan's master strategist, or even Salahuddin, the later Muslim commander who fought against the Crusaders. Well, so far we've eliminated a number of possibilities. We haven't really given you any kind of explanation. So let's talk about some of the things that actually worked in the Muslim favor. Above all, the main thing was the political situation at the time. You know how sometimes when we talk about sports, we talk more about how one team lost the game than how the other team won it? Uh, a few recent Super Bowls come to mind. The Muslim state largely expanded into a power vacuum. And so a bigger question, perhaps, is not why the Muslims won, but why the people they went up against were so vulnerable. Quite frankly, if you wanted to pick a time in history to go on a world conquest, this was really it. You know, the term Dark Ages is thrown around a lot. Sometimes people use this to refer to the entire medieval period. But most historians nowadays say that only really a small part of the Middle Ages could really be called Dark Ages. And that starts basically with the fall of the Roman Empire, goes through what we call the barbarian invasions that brought Huns, Goths, Vandals, Lombards, and many other tribes to Europe. And it begins to end when those people settle down and become the nations of Europe, when Franks become the French. So if the Dark Ages is a fairly brief historical period, it also happens to be exactly the period when the Muslim conquests occur. If you wanted to find a time in which Europe and the Mediterranean was extremely weak, this was it. However, not all was weakness. So the two major empires that did exist at this time were the Byzantines and the Sassanid Persians. Now, of course, no one ever called themselves a Byzantine. They referred to themselves as Romans, and they were the Eastern Roman Empire, or the rump that was left of the Roman Empire. This Eastern Roman Empire, centered in Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul in Turkey, it was largely Greek in culture, and it considered itself the inheritor of Rome. Now, we're going to call them Byzantines here just to distinguish them from the Western Roman Empire, which was, of course, uh, ruled from the city of Rome. Now, there is a tendency to look at Byzantines as a weak empire. And in fact, I mean, they started out as the rump of the Roman state, and they were constantly under barbarian attack throughout their history. But that's quite unfair. I mean, in reality, both Byzantium and Sassanid Persia at the time were really more like political roller coasters. And by that, I mean they went through long periods of decline and chaos, but then they would rebound sharply when a strong ruler emerged and actually have a period of victory and expansion, but they definitely fell into decline thereafter. You know, we talked in earlier episodes about how the Arabs did not have a tradition of inherited leadership like the Europeans. The kingship did not automatically pass from father to son. Essentially, the most capable person was chosen. Well, if we look at what was happening to the Byzantines and the Persians, we get one piece of evidence for why that was. They were so dependent on the personality of the leader. And if the emperor died and left an incompetent or a young child in his place, uh, the empire went through a period of chaos. So there were some great Byzantine emperors, people like Justinian or Heraclius. But as one scholar put it, the successor to most emperors was chaos. Okay, now, so to get an idea of how this works, we're going to look at two of the most important and two of the earliest conquests and look at the political situation. And this is specifically talking about the conquest of Syria and Iraq. 
Syria was part of the Byzantine Empire, a uh, very well settled and historic area, and modern day Iraq was a center of really the uh, most important province of the Persian Empire. Whether there was a deliberate plan on the part of the Muslims to conquer much of the world or not has been debated, and you know most of the people who advance that idea have a certain agenda. The evidence is pretty sketchy. I mean, yes, there are comments found in the Quran about fighting enemies of the faith, but those are rather general. We don't see a very clear plan of attacking this specific area and spreading into another area. What we do know is that the end of the Prophet Muhammad's life, most of modern-day Saudi Arabia had been subdued, and under the first caliph, Abu Bakr, the Muslims had been brought basically to the borders of Syria and Iraq. And if you remember, we mentioned that the Byzantine and Persian empires had settled friendly, allied Arab tribes into those areas. And Abu Bakr felt like those should be brought under the domination of Islam as well. Now what happened was the conquests of those tribes, these fringe areas, went so well the Muslim forces began to see how weak both the Persian and Byzantine empires were that they were definitely encouraged to go on. So we could really call Syria and Persia as targets of opportunity. Well given the state of the Mediterranean world at this period in time, they're going to find a lot of lucrative targets of opportunity. So this leads to one of the main reasons for the conquest that historians mention, and that is that the Bedouin lived upon raiding, which was considered honorable as long as you stayed within certain limits of conduct. Furthermore, Abu Bakr had roused the tribes for the Battle of the Wars of Ridda, which remember we described in the Rashidun episode, where he subdued the desert region. Well, like many fighting forces in history, these raiding warriors needed an outlet. They needed somewhere to go. And we have seen the kind of trouble they could create if they were left to fight amongst themselves. So Syria and Persia provided lucrative areas for expansion. They were far richer than the areas that the Arabs were coming from. It's easy to see why these would become lucrative targets of opportunity if we look at the condition of Syria and Iraq. Both the Byzantine and Persian empires had been weakened by the waves of barbarian incursions, and honestly, you can't blame them for focusing their security attention on the north instead of the desert to the south. But a far worse invader had struck in the 6th century, and this was the plague. When we talk about devastating plagues, we usually focus on the one that happened in the 14th century, and there's good reason for that. It killed about a third to half of Europe. But there were actually many waves of the bubonic plague that struck through much of Asia and Europe in the Middle East. And there was a big one around the year 540. And it killed possibly uh, the same amount of people, about to a third of the population of those areas. So much of the area in the Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire was heavily depopulated by the time of the Muslim conquest. And we can see this from the accounts of the conquerors. They talk about going into places that had previously been thriving cities and finding them basically like ghost towns and finding some prime agricultural farmland having gone to weeds. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, why the conquests weren't really seen as such a big threat by the inhabitants, because um, there was a lack of population and an abundance of natural resources that were not being exploited. Another reason for the Muslim success, surprisingly, was religion. Nowadays, we tend to look at this time as Islam versus Christianity, but that was definitely not the way it was seen at the time. Actually, in the historical records from the Christian populations, no one referred to Islam as another religion. It was still new, and it was basically seen as one more sect of monotheism. Now that was a big issue because there were many competing Christian sects at the time. And the Byzantines considered many of them to be heretical. In fact, they, were, they all considered each other to be heretics, but the Byzantines were the ones in power. The government in Constantinople was firmly of the Chalcedonian sect. 
However, most of the local populations of Syria and later when we talk about Egypt were not. Uh, Syria was largely Nestorian Christians, which were uh, the same as those found in the Arabian Peninsula, and Egypt was uh, Coptic Christian and still is today. The issue that divided these sects was the nature of Christ, so it was that important enough that it was considered a heresy. So in terms of the vast array of monotheistic sects that were available, the local inhabitants didn't necessarily see the Muslims as any more alien than the imperial rulers. There was a big difference, however, that the Byzantine authorities, especially when their power was on the rise, felt like cracking down on heretics was a good way of cementing their authority. And so they tended to persecute them pretty heavily. In a historical vacuum, this might have worked. But when there was an expanding other monotheistic religion coming up from the south, this backfired terribly. As we described earlier in, a, in an episode about the Caliph Umar, who by this time had replaced Abu Bakr, when he conquered the city of Jerusalem, he signed a very clear treaty with the Christian and Jewish inhabitants delineating their rights. Remember, as long as they paid a tax, and in this case it was set to be the same tax rate as the Byzantine tax rate, they were allowed to worship in peace, run their own internal affairs, have their own courts. We mentioned earlier, Omar protected the Christian churches. And this model became the standard for treaties that were developed during the conquest. So if you combine that sort of option about having a treaty that guarantees your rights versus what you were getting under the Byzantine Empire, which was a lot of persecution, it's little wonder that most of the local Christian populations actually welcomed the invaders. So this idea of, quote, Christian versus, quote, Muslim is certainly not the way it was seen at the time. There are a few instances of Christian forces actually joining the Muslim armies, but the main support they provided was tacit, meaning they didn't rebel and they didn't cause problems. A second service they could provide, though, very importantly, was intelligence. Byzantine defense system relied upon fortified towns, and the Muslims had very few heavy weapons that would enable them to breach some of the gates and the heavy walls of these towns. But if you had someone on the inside who would open the gates for you, then that made the walls useless. And this is what happened in countless battles. There's stories of someone, uh, usually a Christian person, who was persuaded by the Muslims to open the gates at the right time. And so the conquest often came down to political and social maneuvering. It was often a case of making the right friends and not alienating the wrong people. And as we've seen from the Caliph Omar and his successors, they were very good about doing that. And unfortunately, the approach taken by the Byzantines very often was exactly the wrong way to go. In Persia, this was not so much of an issue. The, the Persian government was Zoroastrian, and most of the inhabitants of the, the area in Iraq, southern Iraq, that was conquered were Christians. But the Persians weren't very heavy on promoting their Zoroastrian faith. They kind of left the Christians alone. The big issue that the Christian populations had, though, was with the Persian nobility. Uh, they had a, a warrior nobility that tended to be fairly heavy-handed. There was another advantage for the Muslim side, and that was politics. Now, the Byzantines and Persians were under a lot of pressure from barbarian forces, and so we can forgive them for that, for not concentrating on the Muslim threat to the south, because they had to deal with people like the Huns. But, as political powers often do, they were more interested in getting a leg up on each other than working together against the real threat. And so that is where they really had a problem. What they did, the very predictable and common tendency in history, is they took the crisis of the barbarian invasions and looked at it as an opportunity to leverage it against each other rather than recognizing the serious threat that they faced. So let's take a look at these two empires to get an idea of this. 
So as we mentioned, both Byzantine and Persian empires went through up and down periods based on who their emperor was and how competent they were. In the year 602, the Byzantine emperor Maurice was assassinated and the empire went into a predictable period of chaos again. The Persian emperor seized the opportunity. He invaded Syria and Palestine and actually made it a good way into modern-day Turkey, getting close to Constantinople. By the time he did, a strong emperor had emerged, and actually one of Byzantium's best emperors, Heraclius. He drove the Persians back out of Byzantine territory, out of Syria, but he kept going. By this time, the Persian emperor had died, and the Persian state was in its period of chaos. Heraclius drove them all the way into what is modern-day Iran. He sacked the royal palaces. He destroyed some very important fire temples of the Zoroastrians. And by the time this war ended, in the year 630, which you might remember is two years before the prophet Muhammad died, uh, Byzantines did have somewhat of a leg up, but the more important effect is both countries were devastated by the effects of this war. Remember, they were still coming out of the effects of plague. They're still being attacked by the barbarians from the north and the west, and they decide to go to war against each other. And so the, the countryside was devastated, depopulated, and it became very vulnerable to an invasion by the Muslims from the south. Okay, so we can see why Syria was vulnerable and why it fell as it did. Uh, but Persian Iraq was a little bit of a different story. But this provides an interesting example of the advantage the Muslims had in manpower, and that was depth. As we mentioned earlier, their armies were not larger or better equipped than their opponents. But they did have one advantage, and we'll see that in play here. Let's take an example of the conquest of Iraq. In 634, the Muslim forces were defeated at a battle which is aptly known as the Battle of the Bridge. It's called the bridge because the commander made an ill-fated decision to cross a bridge over a river to engage the enemy on the other side. Well, you can imagine what that did. That split his army in half and narrowed them down to this very narrow choke point on the bridge. And so half the army got trapped. And as you would imagine, they were thoroughly destroyed. But here was the thing. The Caliph Omar at the time took this defeat in stride and he went back and raised another army and he had ample tribes to choose from under his control and in fact he was very choosy about who he used he didn't want to send the wrong tribes into battle if you remember Omar was a very very clever political strategist and he was always balancing the tribes to make sure that certain ones didn't get too much power he was particularly wary about using Bedouin tribes and having them get out of control he preferred to use tribes from the south, uh, particularly in the area around what is now, nowadays Yemen, which was a more settled area. So the point was, after his army was completely destroyed, he was able to raise a new army, and three years later, invaded Iraq again, engaged the Persians at the Battle of Qadisiyah, and won. The Battle of Qadisiyah is, is heralded and celebrated uh, throughout the Islamic world, particularly in Iraq. Saddam Hussein back in his era, I mean, he used to name all kinds of things after Qadisiyah. But the reality is that the battle itself wasn't that decisive. There were two battles. The Muslims won one and they lost another. So it seems like a split. The difference here was that the Caliph Omar could have made up his losses. I mean, if he had lost the second battle, he could have gone back and put together another army and gone in a third time. He had the depths of manpower. The Persians didn't. Their country had been bled hard by disease and by unnecessary war. And beyond that, there was the issue of confidence in the rulers. They went through periods of up and down when they had weak rulers or a succession of rulers. And even when they had a strong ruler, seeing that ruler lose a battle, he would lose a lot of credibility. So the basic issue was that the Persians could not rebound from their losses. And for the most part, the Byzantines could not rebound from their losses as well. And this was an advantage that the Muslims had.
The conquest of Iraq also set another precedent that would continue, and this really uh, affects the shape of the map of the Muslim world, uh, even up to this day. Khalif Omar, as we mentioned, very skilled politician, and everything he did had a purpose. And he was very concerned about allowing his armies to get too powerful or to be distracted from his control. And so he was very concerned about his armies mingling in, settling, and intermarrying with the conquered populations. So in Iraq, after the conquest, uh, he chose not to establish his forces in any of the well-established cities of Iraq. Uh, the capital of the Persian Empire was actually there, not far from where modern-day Baghdad is today. Instead, he established a new garrison town called Kufa. Now, you may remember that name. We talked about it in the previous episode about the Sunni-Shia split, because this is where Ali took refuge after he couldn't stay in Medina. And it was a natural place to go because that was the newly established Muslim town. So the intent was to keep the Muslim garrison separate from the rest of the population. On the one hand, it was a way of keeping them under firm control. But it also had another effect, and Omar being as smart as he was, we have to assume this was intended as well, is it prevented them from becoming a burden on the local population. They didn't take over the homes of the local population. They didn't take over their cities. They established their own city. And so it made these conquerors not too bad of neighbors. Okay. Additionally, Omar chose to establish Kufa inland, away from the Gulf port of Basra. Really only one place where Iraq meets the water, and that is Basra. But that was really one of the, the richest places in Iraq at the time. But this was another trend that Omar established. He was very wary of being too close to the sea. Remember, it would be his successor, Uthman, who established the first navy. At this point, his enemies had the sea power, and particularly the Byzantines had the, the strongest navy in the region. So as a result, we see that most of the Arab capitals that were established are established inland, in locations that seem pretty odd to us today if we look at them. Take for example Egypt. The capital of Egypt had been the great city of Alexandria, which is one of the world's great cities known for its fabulous libraries, for its world wonders. It was, it's a wonderful port on the Mediterranean coast uh, where the Nile River meets the Mediterranean. Natural place. I mean, this is the city that Alexander the Great named after himself in, in his world conquest. The Muslim capital was established about 100 miles down south next to a Byzantine fort called Babylon. Now that is somewhat confusing to us today because the famous Babylon, of course, is the ancient one in Iraq. But the main garrison south of uh, Alexandria was this fort called Babylon. And you can still visit it today. Uh, the remains of this fort and the Christian community that were located with it are now in what is called Coptic Cairo. It's actually it's one of the most uh, fascinating places of the city to, to visit. There is a vibrant Coptic Christian community there. Uh, some of the oldest churches in the Middle East are still operating there. And the remains, the walls of this garrison, were still to be seen. When the Muslim army defeated the Byzantine forces in Babylon, they set up a new garrison town outside the city in a place they called Fustat. A later caliphate, the Fatimids, came along and they built a capital slightly to the north of that and they called it Al-Qahira, meaning the victorious, and which is where we get the name Cairo from. These were all on the east side of the Nile River, where the ancient pyramid complex at Giza, the very famous pyramids, was on the west side. It's hard to tell now because Cairo has become a, a huge megacity which has swallowed all of these places. But initially, if you look at it, you can see how these were established as distinct communities. So the Muslims established their capital separate but close to the Byzantine community and about a hundred miles from the sea. It's somewhat of a, a sign that throughout the monarchy, the Egyptian kings, 
who, even though the capital was in Cairo, they used to spend their summer in Alexandria. It just seems like a more natural location. Uh, one more I just want to mention would be the great city of Carthage. Of course, I mean, a famous uh, empire in and of itself, and then it became a Roman city. The Muslims conquered it around 698 AD. Carthage is in a beautiful location along the Mediterranean Sea, near beautiful beaches, and a wonderful summer breeze comes in. The, the Muslims, they did set up a, a seaport in the neighboring village of Tunis, but they put their capital well inland in the desert city of Kairouan. Uh, similarly, the, the Muslim capital of Fez was established well inland from the coastal city of Tangier. Now, it, when we look at the location, it seems pretty curious to us today. Kairouan is a fascinating city to visit. got a lot of history. You should go there. But it's hot, it's dusty, it's in the middle of the desert. The average summer high temperature is over 98 degrees there. Tunis, which has now swallowed up what, what was once Carthage, is one of the most popular resort cities in the Mediterranean. Beautiful beaches, a beautiful natural location right on the Mediterranean. But it was a strategic decision because the Byzantines still had a navy that could raid Tunis. Even if they did, even if they landed in Tunis and took that city over, they would have to cross a harsh desert to get to the Muslim forces at Kairouan, and that was the kind of terrain on which the Muslims excelled. So when we look at these cities today, I mean, you, we tend to think, wow, these people, they just love desert. They put them in, in all these what seem like bad locations, but it was based on a strategic weakness that they had. There is, of course, one exception to this rule, and that is Syria. Uh, in Syria, the Muslims set up in well-established cities. And Damascus, which is believed to be the oldest city in the world that's still occupied, became their capital. And, of course, they uh, set up in Jerusalem and several other cities as well. That was just a one-off decision that was made before this precedent was established, but it, it did have significant consequences. If you remember, we discussed last time, it was Muawiyah, the Umayyad, who became the governor of Syria and, of course, established his capital in Damascus. This is one of the reasons he had a much stronger power base than his other competitors, because he inherited very well-developed urban area with infrastructure that was connected to ports. So this is one of the reasons he became so strong. Well, the settlement of the land and conversion to Islam followed very slowly thereafter. After the conquest and the establishment of these garrison cities, a settlement of the land and conversion of the population took place very slowly thereafter. In the next two centuries, most of the population of these areas would be converted to Islam. And one of the ways we can tell is by looking at historical registers and looking at the names that people took for themselves, and particularly the names they give their children. That's a good idea of how much of the population is shifting. So this idea of conversion by sword, although it's popular in the Western imagination, really didn't happen. Ironically, in some cases, the Muslim rulers of provinces and cities were concerned about the po local population converting too fast. Now the reason for this is, as we've mentioned before, the non-Muslim populations paid a tax, the jizya. And this was their compensation for not having to serve in the army. Uh, remember, the, the Arab Muslims did serve in the army. But as the empire spread, it had less need for new soldiers, but an increasing need for taxes and basic goods to support the empire. So uh, there was a concern that if everybody had converted to Islam right away and you kept this rule about the jizya tax, it would have created some economic disadvantage. The local population, particularly the agricultural population, wasn't really encouraged to convert too quickly. Now that being said, nobody was prevented from converting to Islam, and large numbers did, including slaves. And if they wanted to convert, they could, and they got all the benefits that ensued. So this is a very different application of religion 
to a conquered people than than anything we've really seen in history. It's it's um, fairly distinct and is a major reason for the success of the Muslim conquest. Uh, you know, human nature. If you come in and tell people hey, you have to switch to our religion, then people are going to fight it. They're going to rebel, and you're going to have trouble on your hands. If you come in and say, hey, look, these people get certain privileges that you don't, but you don't have to join them, then now everybody wants to do it. And so the effect of this is that uh, after a short amount of time, Bedouin population, which originally had posed somewhat of a security problem, had largely settled down. But as we look at the map of the area that was conquered, you see in most of these areas, the Muslim population is skirting along desert. And so what is happening is they are incorporating new nomadic populations. For example, the Berbers, which is really an umbrella for many different ethnicities and language groups in the Sahara, as they became part of the new empire, they became part of the new armies, there was a need to find outlets for them. We were not worried so much about Bedouin rebellions as now we were worried about Berber rebellions. And that was one of the reasons why uh, the Muslim forces would expand from what is modern-day Morocco into Spain, which is the furthest western extent of the conquest. In the year 711, the general Tariq ibn Ziyad led his forces into Spain, and they were primarily Berbers in his army. The famous location where he crossed the Mediterranean, where, of course, Spain comes closest to Morocco, is a place that has a very distinctive rock, which was named after him, called Jebel Tariq, which means the Mountain of Tariq. And this was Romanized into Gibraltar, and it's a famous location today. Well, in the conquest of Spain, as in other provinces, uh, the local Christians played a large part of the government bureaucracy, and the Jewish population flourished here. Jewish population went into finance and banking and into education. Some of the greatest Jewish writers, not just of the medieval period, but of all time, come out of the Muslim Spain period. Okay, so, so far we've talked about great success. And so you may ask, okay, if everything's going so well, why did these conquests stop? This question, unfortunately, is a lot more difficult to answer. In the end, there are a number of different theories about why the Muslim conquest stopped. The truth is, it was probably a combination of all of these factors. What we do know, though, is that the expansion ended in different ways and for different reasons in different directions. So we're going to try to answer this question, and the answer is not going to be completely satisfactory. But let's look at how the Muslim conquests come to an end in the major fronts. So we left off talking about Spain and Europe. Popular European history tells us that the Muslims were decisively defeated at the Battle of Tours in southern France under the early Frankish leader Charles Martel, which means Charles the Hammer. Well, in reality, that battle actually decided very little. Uh, the Muslim force that Charles Martel defeated was little more than a raiding party, but actually that event does mark a turning point. Really what historians say today is by that time the Muslim advance had run out of steam. By this point, only small raids were going forth from Spain into what is now France, and these were eventually stopped. And so uh, the defeat of the Muslim forces under Charles Martel, yeah, it does mark a watershed. It doesn't really mark a decisive battle. Why the Muslims became exhausted by this point has many explanations. It's often cited that the Great Pyrenees Mountains, which form a, a very tough barrier between Spain and France, were an obstacle. Uh, but this seems unlikely. I mean, the Muslims conquered some serious obstacles before. They went across the Mediterranean to get there, and they were not a naval power. 
A more reasonable explanation is that most of the invading population, including the Berbers, who were the bulk of the army, had been settled in Spain and Portugal, which is an area that had ample fertile land, a fairly decent urban infrastructure, it's a great agricultural area to settle in. Basically, once there wasn't a need to expand further, they didn't. Another event that had an effect was a major civil war in North Africa, which caused a lot of the forces to be diverted down there. In the end, however, the famous Charles Martel probably does deserve a lot of the credit. Not for winning a decisive battle, but in the sense that he marks one of the early founders of modern European states. Okay, Charles Martel would be the leader of what would eventually become France, in fact, what was quickly becoming France, and he was a predecessor of the great Charlemagne. And the establishment of Charlemagne's empire in the year 800 is often cited as the beginning of modern European history. And so what is happening is barbarian tribes like the Franks have settled down and are turning into modern European states with armies that have mounted knights and castles. And so at this point, the Muslims are running into what is really a strong, although early, European military state. Now, the great scholar Hugh Kennedy, who I mentioned earlier, he commented that if the Muslim conquests had begun a hundred years earlier, they probably wouldn't have gone far. But it's also true that if the advance into Spain or France had occurred 50 or 100 years before, it might have gone well into much of Europe. So that gives us some explanation for the stop of the Muslim incursion into Europe, even if it's not completely satisfying. Okay, moving to the east, the natural question we ask is, why didn't the Muslims conquer all of Byzantium? I mean, they, they conquered Syria. They made it a little ways into what is modern-day Turkey. Why didn't they go all the way to Constantinople and conquer it? Well, it wasn't for lack of effort or lack of desire. Uh, the Byzantines were, and would remain for much of medieval history, the main enemy of the Muslim Empire. And while the Muslim armies advanced pretty well into modern-day Turkey, at sometimes getting very close to Constantinople, they were always turned back. Now, if they ever give an award for the most effective city walls, then Constantinople is the hands-down winner. You can still see some of the walls of Constantinople. Uh, in its time, it had the, the unmatched defenses of any city. But those walls saved it from so many barbarian attacks and Muslim attacks that it's really unparalleled in history. It wouldn't be until the final conquest by the Ottoman Turks in the year 1453. I think we're talking over 700 years from the period when Syria falls. By that time, however, when Constantinople did fall, it was like the only thing that was left in the entire uh, Byzantine Empire, so we can see why it would fall. So these city defenses really lasted for over a thousand years. Uh, the Caliph Muawiyah, the first Umayyad Caliph, was particularly intent on taking Constantinople. And when he failed by land, he even tried a sea invasion, which almost would have worked, but the Muslim navy was eventually defeated and couldn't take the city of Constantinople. Oddly enough, throughout the medieval period, the only people who managed to sack the city of Constantinople was the European Crusader army, which was sent there to save it. Eventually what happens is the frontier between the Byzantine and Muslim empires stabilized in modern-day Turkey, and although battles would go back and forth uh, every summer, there was always a campaign, it was a pretty much a skirmish which was almost uh, pro-former, almost there for show. The reason for this is unless they could conquer the capital city of Constantinople with the logistical lines for both forces, it limited how far they could go. Okay, the last front of expansion was into Central Asia, and this is where the conquests went on the longest. This is where the wars continued the longest. Well after the forces had settled in Spain, uh, the frontiers had been st stabilized along the Byzantine Empire, there was still expansion going on and actually a lot of defensive warfare going on in what is today modern-day Afghanistan and Pakistan. 
Now what happened here is the armies eventually reached the steppes of Central Asia. They really left the settled region and ran into nomadic tribes, most of these being Turkish tribes. And this is where the hardest fighting of all the campaigns occurred. This also would mark the eventual downfall of the empire because this area remained an open door. So we have some frontiers that are established, but really you have an open step. Uh, we know there are a lot of nomadic tribes that have been moving in this great migration that took them all the way into Europe and eventually is going to take them into the Middle East as well. And so Turkish tribes from Central Asia would eventually conquer the eastern part of the Muslim Empire and come to dominate the Muslim Empire. Uh, that's a few centuries off, but the fact that this open door was essentially left into the steppes of Central Asia uh, will remain a security threat throughout the history of the Muslim Empire. Okay, so let's recap here. We have a series of campaigns that begins around the death of the Prophet Muhammad in the year 632. By the year 750, Muslim rule has been established from Spain all the way to Central Asia. So you can see why we call this series When Islam Ruled the World. Okay, this is an impressive development, but what's really impressive to us is the culture that's going to develop in this empire and the institutions. Yes, in terms of sheer square mileage, this is one of the most impressive conquests in history, but a lot of peoples managed to conquer large swatches of the world. The question is, why did this empire last for about five centuries as an empire, and why does the culture persist today? Even after the fall of the caliphates, we still talk about Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt as Arabic countries when they were absolutely not Arabic in any way at the times they were conquered. We don't talk about a Hunnish world today. We don't talk about a Mongol world today. So what's really important is the permanence of this Muslim empire. And this depends a lot about the institutions that were founded to administer not just an empire, but an Islamic nation under Islamic law. And it's those institutions that we want to talk about. And that's what we're going to focus on next time. So we hope to see you then. Thank you very much. Ma salama.